0: You're listening to the Stefan Libera podcast, focused on Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Listen in and learn alongside me as I interview some of the sharpest minds, ranging from economists, software developers, investors, entrepreneurs, and writers. Hey guys, welcome to the show. This is your host, Stefan, and today my guest is the great Jameson Lopp. He is a very well-known cypherpunk within the Bitcoin community. He is also the CTO of Casa, one of the best key management companies that is out there today. And he is also the creator of statoshi.info, a Bitcoin statistics website. And he's also um, the curator of one of the best known Bitcoin resource pages. Uh, So first of all, thank you very much for coming on the show, Jameson
1: pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, so look, I think um, basically everyone, most of the people listening to this probably already know you. So maybe we can start with a bit of discussion on, you know, what are the things that you're thinking about lately from a Bitcoin point of view you're thinking about and working on?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm basically continuing the security focus that I've had for the past three years uh, with our vault product the uh, casa key master uh, which we're currently targeting for high net worth individuals but of course eventually want to make available to as many people as possible and simultaneously i've uh, started thinking a lot more about lightning as we've been working on this plug and play node product so I've, uh, I've actually been in the trenches doing a lot of one-on-one customer support over the holidays recently, trying to uh, take some load off of our engineers' backs. And I've learned uh, quite a bit about Lightning and you know uh, realized that it definitely still has a number of rough edges to be worked out. It's definitely still you know, hashtag reckless to, to be operating uh, a Lightning node with real money behind it. But I definitely see a bright future ahead, and there's a lot of potential, and we just need to keep on building.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Actually, on that topic, what are some of the rough edges you speak of around Lightning, and what are some of the common pain points?
1: Uh, well, so there are security issues with regard to the fact that you're basically running a hot wallet. Uh, the stuff that we're running into more often. Uh, with our users is trying to figure out how to make it as as seamless as possible for a lightning node operator to maximize the use of their node, and and so that basically means giving them a better understanding of kind of their economic position within the network and and how they might be able to tweak different things in order to um, maximize. Their connections or their routing uh, of of money flowing through the uh, node that they're operating, and these are you know some of the big like unanswered questions is more on the economic side of things is is how will the liquidity of this network eventually be managed and, and of course we hope that it will mostly be managed by software and and um, done on a sort of autopilot basis, but the the autopilot functionality that is out there right now is definitely very early stage. And uh, from what we've been seeing, it is not yet reached the point where it can actually surpass what a dedicated human operator can do if they actually understand uh, how to config their channels.
0: Yes, yeah, so I've understood. As I understand, there is a fair bit of skill that goes into the channel management component of it. And that can make the difference between, you know, really having people route through you versus. Being one of the let's say nodes that doesn't really route many payments.
1: Yeah, so there's actually a fair amount of, uh, I guess, inefficient use of of capacity on the network right now, and probably one of the best examples of that is actually the the largest liquidity provider on the network, uh, LN Big, whoever they are. They have opened up. I don't even know how many. Hundred, if not thousand, channels with various nodes on the network, and I'm I'm pretty sure that the vast majority of them are actually not getting used, and they seem to have just kind of gone with the spray and pray approach. But uh, hopefully, they'll continue to refine their own logic.
0: Right, right, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, yeah, from the discussions I've heard of in the community, you know, guys like Alex Bosworth has a very, he has a very, you know, well-connected node, and he's getting a lot of, you know, routing fees for that. So. I think uh maybe that's just a learning journey that we all go on
1: yeah there's there's that, and uh also you know just trying to take this to the next level where we we don't want it to require someone to be you know technically proficient or uh a nerd who is gonna be willing to spend a lot of time to actually understand the protocol or how the network works. Uh, We're really trying to build plug and play solutions that are usable for your average millennial. And that's gonna be one of the biggest challenges I think is is just continuing to build layers of abstraction uh, to, to have a better user interface and user experience to, Get as much of the the complicated day to day stuff uh, hidden under the hood, so that we can just present you know some nice graphs and charts and maybe some buttons for people to click, but uh, they shouldn't actually have to understand things like payment channel liquidity or or um, or like channel timeout configurations and all the, the various game theory that's actually going on behind the scenes.
0: Yeah, excellent points. Okay, and. Something I've seen you write recently was uh, a really great article, I think it was very illuminating, which was around, back more on the Bitcoin side, it was Who Controls Bitcoin Core? So Jameson, do you want to talk through a little bit of the background of why did you write this article?
1: Well, um, like a number of things that I write, it's usually self-serving. It's... It's usually something where I've had so many arguments about a specific uh, topic or specific point uh, within the ecosystem, and I'm tired of repeating myself and and tired of like constantly forgetting a lot of the nuances behind some of these very complex ideas. Is that I just uh, sit down and write everything out and you know get some peer review input from other people in the community and try to build what is as close to, I guess, an authoritative uh, response or resource when it comes to a, a question about like how Bitcoin actually operates. And so the, the question of you know, who controls Bitcoin or who controls Bitcoin Core as a repository comes up on a, a regular basis, uh, usually by people who look at one specific group or look at uh, you know one specific piece of software and jump to a conclusion and it's very easy to do because there's a lot of complexities that are, are going on here and so I basically tried to go through point by point and explain to people how you know not only does Bitcoin Core as a repository have no control over the network because It doesn't push out updates to any nodes, node operators have to go and get the software and install it voluntarily. But even within Bitcoin Core as a process of software development, there are a ton of checks and balances that are happening to minimize the trust and minimize the power of anyone who is operating in that repository including the fairly short list of maintainers who have the ability to actually merge code into the repository.
0: Right and so that is I suppose just to call out the specific role that is in relation to the maintainer accounts that can merge code but then as you explained in the article that's really more like a janitorial function than a position of power.
1: Yes for a number of reasons but the The biggest one being that everyone is watching everyone else within the repository. And because at the end of the day, this is all voluntary and nobody can really force anyone to do anything, uh, if someone abuses the small amount of power that they do have, if the rest of the organization uh, decides that they can't strip that power away, then they can always just leave, right? It's the kind of voice and exit issue. And, and that kind of plays out at many different levels, not just within software repositories, but within the entire crypto ecosystem, is that at the end of the day, anyone who has power in one of these public permissionless systems only has the illusion of power from some perspectives. Um, because if, if enough people disagree with their decisions and the way that they're trying to change or not change the system, then they can always just go create their own new network, their own protocol, and, uh, and, and basically form a new focal point of consensus.
0: Fantastic. And then I like how in this article you actually went into the detail and you really sort of spelled out each of, who knows, this may not even be fully comprehensive, but there are just numerous controls that exist from a pull request security point of view and a release security point of view that each of these different points could catch a change or an unwanted change. Could you outline a little bit on some of those and then how, how you went about just identifying each of those was it just discussion was it just your own knowledge
1: yeah i mean a lot of it was reading the documentation i mean i already had a pretty general idea of of how uh, the build and release system happened though i had never you know read it line by line and, and tried to look at the software that was being used but um it uh it really is all there on the repository. You just have to dig through uh, and and find the documentation and And I learned a few things along the way. Uh, for example, there are scripts that you can run to verify all of the uh, the cryptographic signatures by the maintainers on every commit that they have merged into the repository. And they started doing that back in December 2015. So there's thousands of commits uh, that this script will go through and verify. And I had never run that before and and I decided that I wanted to better understand it. So I tried to run it and I ran into a few issues and I actually ended up contributing uh, some new documentation and new code to the Bitcoin Core repository as a result of that. And that's I think a great example of how this software and how open source in general works is that somebody becomes interested in a project, they start learning about it, they start trying to use it, and they might find a pain point and figure that, you know if it's a pain point for them, it will probably be a pain point for other people. And so they can save future people that same pain by uh, going through the, the process to update code or update documentation and you know that's how we make these incremental small improvements that over many years uh end up creating extremely high quality software
0: fantastic yeah i love the explanation there also i think a related uh piece of news that came out was around the btc p or btc private they had a covert inflationary pre-mine now People who are newer to crypto might fear that such a similar thing could happen with Bitcoin, but how realistic or unrealistic is such a fear? Would you suggest that Bitcoin Core has a much greater level of review and eyes on the code?
1: Yeah, I think the, the timing on that coming out just a few weeks after I published this in-depth ex- explanation of how to do secure open source engineering was a very fortuitous because and. And this was actually a question that i got of course after I, I published the post um several people asked well do any other projects out there in the cryptocurrency space have anything you know similar to this process and my my honest answer is i have no idea i don't have the time to go and look at all of the the development processes of all the different projects and i would hope that the larger projects have similar processes but we can see very clearly that these really small projects that only have a handful of developers behind them, they, they simply don't have the, the manpower and possibly even the expertise with this type of engineering, which I have often said is, is probably closest uh, to something like an aerospace engineering uh, mindset, where you have to be extremely security conscious and extremely... Um, Low tolerance with uh, what is allowed to happen because the the smallest little error can be a critical system of vulnerability that results in massive harm. So that's you know one of the reasons why I think that Bitcoin Core as a project is extremely conservative, um, and and why it's very easy for other. I guess, naive, less experienced developers to just look at it as, Oh, it's just a piece of software. I can fork it and make changes to it. But without the necessary infrastructure around the development process, without enough eyes on the project and enough people watching each other to be the checks and balances, then it's very easy for either a malicious person to get in and make bad changes or just for someone to, to, to screw up and, and you know, have one bad line of code that that makes it through review, and I think you'll probably talk about it later. Of you know, even even a project like Bitcoin Core, which has some of the highest uh, level of you know, quality assurance and engineering, uh, mistakes can still happen.
0: Oh, exactly, and I suppose that's the perfect um, opportunity then to ask my next question, which was around uh, in the case of mistakes such as the recent. CVE 2018 17144, which was the a couple months ago, which was the inflationary bug. Now, obviously, at the time, there was a lot of news around that. And I think some of this comes to that concept of consensus as well. So, you know, let's hypothetically say it had been exploited on the main chain rather than on the test net where it was. Do you think there would have been sufficient consensus to roll back to the non-inflationary chain?
1: Yeah. So this is where you can get really uh, philosophical, I guess, and start going down an infinite number of paths of like what could have happened. And so the, the question kind of becomes what a, what would the severity of it be and b how long, uh, or how much time would pass before it would, was noticed and people would start uh, talking about trying to fix it somehow. Now, with an inflation bug, I imagine that would be noticed within an hour or two because there are so many people who are running various dashboards and statistics sites and have alarms set that, that it would probably not uh, be able to go for more than a few blocks without somebody noticing um, simply because, you know, you'd have the, the change to the UTXO set would, would increase um, more than it's supposed to. So then the question is, well, how, how badly do they exploit it? So if someone created a billion bitcoins, I think there would be no question uh, that just like what happened back in 2010, when someone created something like a billion bitcoins, that um, it was uh, rolled back, uh, that the chain was rolled back, uh, I think, a, m- a matter of hours worth. And, uh, and they proceeded forward. Now, you know, then the question comes, well, what if, what if it was exploited, but not in a way that caused a ton of harm? Like what if someone only created one Bitcoin or, uh, you know, a a few thousand Satoshis, like they just exploited it to prove that it could be done. Um, That would be much more difficult, I guess. (laughs) And there would be a lot more contentious discussion about how drastic of a change uh, should, should be made. And, you know, how much uh, time would it be worth uh, basically reorganizing the chain to fix that? So um, it's very difficult to predict all the, the different possible outcomes uh, because I think it's really more of this like multivariable spectrum of things that could happen. And, uh, you know, if if it's something that caused a lot of harm, then it's not going to be particularly controversial to try to fix it. But if it was less harmful and more of just like egg on your face, uh, we've exploited the bug, then uh, we might just have to roll forward and and fix it from that point on.
0: That's a very illustrative example. And it does come to some of this discussion around, you know, what is Bitcoin and what exactly makes Bitcoin. And so there was some recent discussion by Alex Morkos of Chaincode Labs, where he commented that some bugs are quirks of Bitcoin. Some are just bugs that get fixed. Uh, in quotations, the, quote, the code is the spec is misleading. Code, uh, Code is the best guideline we have to what defines Bitcoin, but common sense and social consensus are required too. So I think that's an interesting way to explain it. And some of that goes to this question of Comprehending Bitcoin as a system, and I think in your in your article you you make an analogy to language. So there are there are dictionaries, but the language is still spontaneous. The language is not defined by the dictionary. Can you talk a little bit on that? Yeah, point?
1: Um, I, and I hate to use the word social contract because <laughs> uh, that is so loaded, and uh, I don't I don't. It, it may be the closest thing that we have to describe it. So you know, there are a few aspects of Bitcoin that are. Fairly uncontroversial that I, I think that there is consensus around them. And one of those, of course, is the 21 million Bitcoin limit. And one of the best examples I think that, uh, that I can make about that is that uh, with regard to what Alex was saying of the code not being the spec, there was, in fact, uh, up until just a couple of years ago, the Bitcoin core had a bug in the code where it would actually create 21 million Bitcoins like every couple hundred years. And uh, Peter Willa actually fixed this with BIP42, which he posted on April Fool's Day a few years ago, but it was actually not a joke. It was a serious Bitcoin improvement proposal where if, if the code had not been changed, then Several hundred years from now, it may have been eight hundred years from now, uh this overflow operation would have happened, and uh fifty bitcoins every block would have started been being rewarded to the miners and you know that's one of those things where I think everyone agreed that that was obviously a bug because we had this social consensus around the twenty one billion uh twenty one million limit and uh, and so it was completely uncontroversial to change the code. And quote unquote, you know, change consensus or at least change machine consensus, because the the issue was that the machine consensus was not in line with human consensus. But of course, when we start talking about human consensus and what is the human consensus for this idea of this thing that we call Bitcoin, that's when it gets really gnarly. And a lot of people tend to want to revert to some other traditional system, like uh, you know, democracy, uh, some sort of voting system where some set of people vote, or or you know, some technocrats uh, get to decide, or you know, create um, an oligopoly even where only a, a few people get to decide because we think that they're the best. And uh, of course, as I've argued uh, on a number of different articles and presentations, you know, this is crypto anarchy. We don't really have any other type of system of governance that can really be equated to this and that that I think the best thing that you can equate it to is um, stuff like language, which is this sort of uh, organically emerging consensus that is constantly evolving. And there really are no uh, foolproof guarantees about like an aspect of a language other than that it is probably going to change over a long period of time.
0: Yeah, for me, it really brings analogies in the ways that even from an anarcho-capitalist Austrian point of view people might make arguments around what would the law be in such a society and similar analogies there are actually drawn of well you see there's lawyers and there's judges but in the same way that dictionaries don't define they don't fully define the law they sort of they might codify the law and in some sense the comments you were making there is similar to that idea of Um, and I love the distinction there between machine versus human consensus. I hadn't heard that terminology before, but it it makes a lot of sense to me as well.
1: Absolutely. Basically the way that I describe it is that the awesome thing that we've created with these protocols is a way to automate human consensus. And in fact, um, the, uh, most recent presentation that I've gone around and given a few times is, uh, something that I call, um, using blockchains to automate bureaucracy and invert bureaucracy. And uh, I basically make the argument that what we're doing is we're creating basically a sentinel that is sitting out there on the network and it is, you know, checking all the rules for us. But we as humans have to agree to the rules first in order to actually run this, uh, this guardian program that is, is checking them for us. And, and sometimes Because it's software and because software is written by humans who are fallible, sometimes that software will have a bug or it will not be enforcing the rules that we think it is. And that is when the machine consensus may fail and we have to fall back to the human consensus, which I think is the kind of foundational layer of all of this uh, cool crypto stuff that we're building on top of it.
0: Yeah, that's an excellent way to put it. The foundation, human consensus is the foundational layer on which we build the machine consensus. Okay, so we've had a fantastic year. Um, We're coming to the end of 2018. We've had so many developments in Bitcoin, ranging from Lightning Network on the main net. We've we've got Liquid Network going. We've got further developments in Blockstream Satellite. We've got Lightning Wallets. We've got payment processes. There's been developments in the mainstream financial world. What were some of the highlights for you?
1: Well, I think the most uh, interesting development has been watching the Lightning Network continue to mature and grow and, and starting to see some uh, some more real commerce start to happen on there. Um, there's, I think, going to be a, a similar level, if not even greater level of development and expansion over the next year on the Lightning Network as more developers start hopping on and, and building more uh, applications on there. And as it becomes safer for the average user.
0: Right. And we've also seen, I think, you know, relevant to you very much so is the multi-signature services. So we're seeing the rise of that. So obviously at Casa, you're heavily involved with this. And there are other providers such as uh, Unchained Capital who are coming out with this idea of collaborative custody as well. So that that is a big development for the year i think and um do you have any thoughts on what we'll see over the next coming year or two from a multi-signature point of view
1: yeah so it's actually been interesting just this past week uh, of we've we've actually seen um a number of fairly large security vulnerabilities uh, get exposed like uh in Electra <laughs> and several different hardware wallets um it's It's going to continue, I think, to uh, push the boundaries of what the average user needs to do. And I'm still very uh, strong belief that uh, anyone who has a non-trivial amount of of crypto assets needs to have them in a multi-sig wallet and that we need to build tools that that allow people to to leverage the, the hardware devices that are already out there but to disperse their keys so that they're not having uh, any single points of failure. And so we're, we're trying to do that at Casa Um, you know, it is, and always has been possible for, for people to do that, but we need to make it a lot easier. So um, I think that ledger and Trezor and these, these hardware wallets have made it a lot easier uh, for people to get to that first step of decent security, but, there's still a lot of things that can go wrong, especially from user error or ignorance or negligence or just not understanding um, all of the possible loss scenarios where that, that in my opinion, is the next level that we need to get to is creating uh, wallet software and, and wallet uh, best practices that basically protect the user from themselves.
0: That's a great point because over time, obviously individuals who can who have you know a high level of bitcoin will obviously you know they can use the premium services but perhaps what we'll see over the next few years is a lot of people trying to do their own roll your own multi-signature and make mistakes and lose bitcoin in the process similar to how people saw exchange hacks in the past and so on and you know the ecosystem might have hardened itself a little bit against people losing money on exchanges and so on but What now with multi-signature for individuals who uh, are at the more, let's say, retail level?
1: Yeah, I mean, there have always been uh, a number of possible pitfalls. In fact, I was just talking to someone earlier this week who told me that they almost lost a lot of money on a paper wallet, and that was due to this issue that not many people talk about where... You may redeem money from a paper wallet, and if you don't send all of it to a specific address, then the rest of it will go to a change address, and you may not actually uh, be keeping the private key for that change address. So, you know, that's an example of just one of the many possible pitfalls where if if you're not highly sophisticated in, in how these protocols work, then you can accidentally send your money into the ether, as it were. So it's... I mean, part of it is definitely user education, but I think if we're really trying to get to mainstream usage, then we need to kind of bake the user education into the actual software and hardware, to really make it idiot-proof and have the, gu- the guide rails of the best practices uh, built into these products in a way that it's very difficult for you to shoot yourself in the foot.
0: Well, speaking of um, you know doing your own cold storage, do you have any thoughts on you know in terms of what your favorite options are is it glacier protocol is it some form of roll your own multi-signature
1: yeah i mean glacier protocol is so insane that uh Really, nobody should be doing that unless you're, you know, operating like an enterprise level uh, operation or something. But um, I generally tell people that the the biggest improvement that you can get is is just buying a hardware wallet. Like that is the best usability and security that anyone can get uh, at a, like an affordable retail level. And then if you're thinking about more long-term stuff, especially around inheritance planning, then it gets a lot more complicated because you have to figure out how you're going to split up your, your seeds and your keys and whatnot and uh, have them available to people who you somewhat trust in case you get hit by a truck or something. And so that's where it gets more complicated. And I, I have a blog post uh, that I, I think I wrote a few months ago about my solution that I used where um I basically took all of my my private key data, all the instructions for recovering everything from all the wallets and uh, created a encrypted data blob with Veracrypt. And then I used Shamir secret sharing on this really long random uh, passphrase, uh, which was used to decrypt that. And then I basically took those different shards of the decryption passphrase and handed them out to my heirs and executors and you know basically had a setup such that you know uh, a certain number of them would have to get together and and basically collude against me if they wanted to be able to unlock everything and uh, and you know some uh, delicate uh, balances and trade-offs that you have to think about because while at the end of the day the system allows you to operate trustlessly if you want your uh, assets to be able to be passed down if you cease to exist, then someone else or some other group of people needs to somehow be able to gain access to them.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. It's a difficult it's a difficult problem, and I think it'll it'll just take time for easy solutions to come out for the, on the market for individuals. Um, I think the the other thing that would be interesting to just talk through in terms of what's happened over 2018 is some of the statistics. And now you recently came out with some of them as well. So I thought it might be interesting to just talk about the implications of some of these. So SegWit use has gone from 10% to 40%. Do you see any implications of that?
1: Well, I think that has been one of several factors that has led to the on-chain transaction fees going a lot lower. Um, You know, Demand in general has gone down, but in addition to Uh, batching of transactions and the use of segregated witness that has uh, taken a lot of the strain off of like running into the block size or blocks block weight limit, which then creates the uh, crazy fee market. Um, Also, a lot of improvement has happened in different services uh, with regard to their fee estimation. I think that people are, are better understanding that if they're patient, they can save a lot of money in certain cases. Um one reason why I'm I am okay with the fact that it's not, you know, 100% or even 50% is I think that this gives us uh, some breathing room and I kind of see it as this uh, natural uh oscillation with regard to adoption and and hitting the the on-chain block space limit is that if we're only at 40% adoption now and we start hitting another big adoption curve and start running into the block space limits, that means that we we actually still have a lot of room for people to uh, start using segregated witness and further increase the amount of on-chain volume. So there are several large services that are still not doing it yet. And uh, if we get to the point where the on-chain fees are getting really high. Then, I think you know some social pressure against those services to actually roll out their segregated witness uh, functionality would actually result in us you know oscillating back down for a while and, and giving us kind of a, a relief valve for adoption. And and this is of course all going on at the same time that Lightning Network adoption is increasing and you know hopefully in the long term, that will be able to, orders of magnitude, greater effect of uh, improving the efficiency of people's use of the Bitcoin network.
0: Yeah, right. And and then also the number of nodes is, well, reachable is sitting around 9,600. And I think, as you mentioned, that per Luke-JR's stats that the unreachable nodes has gone from about ninety-eight thousand down to sixty-five thousand or so. Uh do you have any comments on the number of nodes or maybe we'll see more of those come online with lightning and you know more people buying you know the caster node product?
1: Yeah so I th- I think that that has definitely declined along with the interest where Probably what was happening is a lot of people were just getting into Bitcoin and they were downloading Bitcoin Core, you know, running the full node, possibly even as their primary wallet. Um, and that the majority of the stability of of nodes that have kept on running are probably the ones that are actually being used for economic purposes, or or being used by the more hardcore uh, OG Bitcoiner types, and they're not really going to be going anywhere now. Like you said, uh, with Lightning, um, at least today, uh, it's recommended that you run your own full node next to your Lightning node. You know that will change a bit in the future with uh, lightweight clients, but um, I think that's actually a great incentive for more people to to start running full nodes, so that you know they're able to operate trustlessly within this new network, especially. Now that running one of these nodes actually has more of an economic impact where you know you're able to collect some fees, you're able to actually uh, help improve the liquidity of this new network, which I think will ultimately increase the utility of Bitcoin and hopefully uh, you know make the value go up as well,
0: yeah, precisely, and another um good statistic is. Block propagation has come down to about half a second. So, if I was a total newbie, how would you explain to me what you know? Why does block propagation matter?
1: Well, it primarily matters in terms of preventing uh, blockchain forks. And what what you want is for the network to all come to a consensus as quickly as possible about the latest update to the state of the blockchain. So. If that takes several seconds or 30 seconds or a minute, um, then that means that miners who are working on the next block, uh, they may not be mining on top of the same block. So they may actually end up creating these competing forks, uh, which then of course uh, result in reorganizations. And in general, that uh, decreases the reliability of a confirmation for your transactions. If, if, lots of chain reorganizations are happening, then people have less confidence in uh, the network and in accepting uh transaction with only a few confirmations. There have been a few extreme examples on some other networks, uh, especially like Bitcoin Cash and the Bitcoin uh, Satoshi Vision uh, fork, which I think created something like a 40 or 50 megabyte block that took something like 40 minutes to propagate around the network. And I think they were having a whole lot of, uh, of orphaned uh, blocks happen in the meantime. And I think in, in general, some of the stress tests that have happened on the Bitcoin cash network as they've been trying to get their blocks up, like around the 20 and 30 megabyte range have have really pushed the limits there of, of what the current level of, uh, technology for propagating data can really do on these decentralized networks
0: yeah exactly and um, it's it's i think there's also another implication just around uh, for miners as well because they, they don't necessarily want to be playing this game of having to constantly shuffle and juggle between the different blocks
1: well yeah i mean it it ultimately comes down to reliability um, they would prefer that what they're working on is as stable as possible, and uh, and they don't want to to mint a block and put it out there on the network and basically have the reward yanked away from them because some other miner uh, got a block, you know, within a minute or so, and and the the rest of the network decided to follow that miner instead.
0: Yeah, it's a bit sort of unjust. Um, and then also from a mining point of view, the hash rate. So the hash rate has gone from nineteen exahashes per second to thirty eight. Do you have any comments around what the implications of that are in terms of Bitcoin's security? Yeah.
1: I mean, it's uh, continuing to increase the thermodynamic security of the network. Um, There, there was some interesting uh, kind of FUD going around recently of, of saying, you know, so much hash rate has been taken offline that that now there's enough offline hash rate that could be used to basically 51% attack the network. And, uh, you know, that may be true on paper, but I think in the real world, it would be uh, extremely challenging to even find uh, those machines, assuming they're still operational, and then B, actually coordinate them to to do that. And C, you know, still pay for the electricity required to do that. But um, it, I think the more interesting question around this is, why has the hash rate continued to increase so much if the exchange rate has dropped so much? And uh, maybe that's because miners are still continuing to get more and more efficient and find cheaper and cheaper sources of power, or perhaps they're uh, really in it for uh, the long run. and, And a number of them may have been operating at like a negative profitability for a while under the assumption that eventually the exchange rate will go back up and that, they will be profitable in the long term
0: yeah exactly so it could be that they've been very speculative and thought like many of us we got really bullish during the the 2017 bull run and they may have over purchased or overbought uh, and sort of overestimated the price growth that would come to them and then now as the prices come down they've had that reality check
1: but this is just the nature of mining right is that uh, uh there are extreme uh volatility in a number of the different variables of of mining and that uh that results in some pretty fierce competition that that ends up pushing a lot of the less efficient people out of the market
0: yeah no i think you're right it's it's very much a game of who can survive and who can sp- speculate well over you know that multi-year cycle as it comes and who knows what will happen with the next cycle? maybe the next cycle we get another Bitmain coming out of it, and it's another big huge mining company
1: yeah i mean i'm I'm still waiting for the really big chip makers to to start ramping up and you know, seeing some real uh industrial competition
0: yeah oh, do you, you think it doesn't um it's not at that level now
1: no no uh you know i I think that you know we're still in the like uh bitcoin enthusiasts industrial mining era um I fully expect that it, that over the long term, this will change uh, as Bitcoin becomes more mainstream. You know, we will see the the larger, more traditional uh, tech companies start to get in there and, and try to compete.
0: Okay. Um, and we've seen a lot of Lightning Channel growth. So I think we've spoken a little bit about Lightning. And then also the Liquid side chain. So that launched... This year as well. And there is, I think you mentioned there are 25 BTC loaded into the liquid side chain. Yeah,
1: it's been pretty quiet. My understanding is that they're still ramping up. Um, so I think 2019 will be much more interesting uh, for liquid and seeing it exactly how much pressure they can uh, take off of the Bitcoin main chain uh, and, you know, help out the exchanges and and traders so that they're not having to flood the the network whenever they're trying to rush for the exits or rush for the entrances.
0: Fantastic. Okay. So now I've just got a couple of questions that are a bit more just random. Um, One of the questions was around Again, coming back to this idea of jurisdictional competition. So do you think Bitcoin may enable a future of mini states that are more open to individual sovereignty? And could we see new and improved forms of social organization that are not as dystopic as modern nation states?
1: Yeah, I mean, in the long run, this is kind of one of my great hopes is that uh, you know, going back to what I was talking about with the... Uh, Inverting bureaucracy and, and automating bureaucracy, is that I believe that Bitcoin is a very interesting experiment that, if is successful in the long run, could not only revolutionize money but revolutionize like how we think about governance. And you know, of course, this is going more into the anarcho-capitalistic uh, philosophies and and whatnot. But if if we get to the point where we have created a type of technology that allows people to be more sovereign, and we can duplicate that uh, to not only allow you to be sovereign about your money, but also be sovereign about many other aspects of your life, whether that's ownership of assets or ownership of your data or you know, ownership of the, the fundamental things that make you you, um, then that is where we start to get to the point where I think that an anarcho capitalistic society might actually be doable. And this is because one of the reasons why these uh, hierarchical command and control governance systems have evolved and become so pervasive throughout human history is because they're very efficient ways of organizing society and organizing um, you know, people's skills and abilities and allowing for you to uh, basically specialize in certain things. And the the downside to that, of course, is that now um, the average human who lives in a first world country probably can't take care of themselves very well, right? Like we don't grow our own food. We probably don't even know how to maintain most of the things that we own. Rather, we have specialists who take care of those. And so trying to transition from this type of society to a more self-sovereign anarcho-capitalist society, that transition is going to be very tricky. And I think that an integral part of being able to do that transition is basically being able to have all, all these autonomous agents that are working on your behalf in the background, and so you you would have your autonomous agents that are working on behalf of your money and your other assets, and and uh, keeping track of other property and and things that you have to maintain, and basically uh, maintaining you know contractual relationships with third parties who would be helping you with those various aspects and so you know this kind of boils down to the uh you know who will build the roads arguments who will maintain the roads who will uh, how how will you have uh, various services that are currently highly socialized, like uh, healthcare, law enforcement, fire uh, protection, et cetera, et cetera, is that you know it's perfectly possible for any of these things to be privatized. But the one of the main reasons that they aren't is that it's just a huge cognitive overhead for you to maintain all of those relationships yourself. It's it's a lot easier for a government, a government, or some other third party to maintain those relationships on your behalf. So I think the the short version of the long-winded answer is that, you know, we continue to create these software agents that can basically uh, start to replace pieces of government functionality. So piece by piece, we can basically deprecate the state.
0: Yeah, that's a fantastic answer. And, you know, in examples of that, even as you mentioned, maintaining your contractual relationships, I mean, who on the question of who will build the roads, well, maybe we'll have lightning channels and you will stream payments for your use of the roads and it will be b- based on how much of it you use and it's like a per-user basis.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the, the possibilities are endless. Uh, we just have to build the technology and, uh, and hope that it is uh, a sufficiently uh, good improvement that people will want to voluntarily adopt it. And, you know... The first step, I think, is Bitcoin. And then, uh, if that's successful enough, then we can start talking about next steps.
0: Fantastic. Um, and also, just had a question around Grin and Beam as Mimble Wimble implementations. Do you have any thoughts on those?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm keeping my, my eye on them. Um, I believe they're both looking at, at doing mainnet launches just in uh, the next few weeks here. So hopefully that goes smoothly. They've both gone through a number of of test nets. Um, I was actually looking at trying to to mine grin uh, because i I bought my first gaming computer in probably at least five or six years. so I've got a, a nice new GPU and uh unfortunately, that's a you know a windows gaming computer, and it appears that uh grin is the miner is only really working on Linux right now. So I need to decide whether or not I want to take the time to try to dual boot Linux and get that all set up or I don't know, it's, you know, uh, never enough time to do everything you want to do.
0: Okay. And then lastly, what's the most private way to have Bitcoin without for an average person to buy some Bitcoin without anyone knowing or the least number of people knowing? Do you have any ideas on you know, if it's like a lo- you do like a local transaction and take it, you know, maybe use BISC, take it into a wallet and put that through, you know, a coin join and then out into some kind of device.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it mainly comes down to a real world privacy problem. So the the most private way that you can acquire any type of crypto asset or really probably any type of asset is, of course, to buy it with cash because cash it has... Some of the best privacy of of any monetary uh, payment systems out there. Uh, so, you know, if you can use uh, some sort of platform like uh, Local Bitcoins or BISC or uh, Mycelium Local Trader, uh, any of these things that allows you to meet face to face with somebody and do a cash transfer, then you have successfully onboarded yourself into the system without uh, tying your identity to those UTXOs then you know the question becomes how do you remain private while you're using uh the system and that turns into a whole big mess which in today's uh standards uh you'd have to be an extreme expert into all the different uh types of privacy leaks and stuff um but the the easiest thing i guess for a user who is going to be transacting and uh basically leaving trails by interacting with various third parties uh, would be to learn about using some of the, the privacy tools that are out there like the Wasabi wall or uh, Join market um, or, or even, um, you know, looking at some of the different, uh, decentralized exchanges to basically allow you to hop between different cryptocurrencies uh, because that's probably one of the better ways to fully break the link between, uh, you know, which UTXOs or which accounts are owned by you, uh, since it, it's not really possible to do cross-blockchain analysis if you're if you're doing uh, a swap that isn't recorded by a party that's doing AML
0: KYC. Right, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so I think that's pretty much all we've got time for. So uh, listeners, if you want to find Jameson, obviously, you know, check out his Twitter. His handle is at Lop L-O-P-P. His website and well-known resources page, net slash Um And I'll also include the link for who controls Bitcoin Core. Which was the article we spoke over, uh, Jameson? Did you have anything else that you wanted to um, tell the listeners, or any parting comments?
1: I think that uh, you know, for, from looking at a lot of the the, sti- the statistics I've been posting uh, of the sort of twenty eighteen roundup, um, the the one thing that people don't seem to be investing in as much as they should is education. <laughs> so uh, you know, whenever anybody asks me like financial questions, especially about the crypto space, I I generally say, you know, if you have to ask those financial questions, then it just means that you haven't invested in education enough because you're you're not able to answer them for yourself. So, you know, do your own research. uh, And this is still the Wild West.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a great way to finish it up. I think you have to make that first investment in education. And thanks very much, Jameson. It's been an illuminating conversation. Thanks for having me. So that's a wrap on my conversation with Jameson Lopp. Let me know what you think. He's got a great security and privacy conscious perspective. So it's definitely worth following what he does, whether that's with CASA or his efforts under his own name. As this is the final episode for the year, let's turn now to my own thoughts on the year in review with this podcast. I've been going for about five months now, having started in late July 2018. I'm really pleased with how it's gone so far, 43 episodes in. I've interviewed many highly talented people within Bitcoin and I've steadily grown my listeners, followers, subscribers. And I just wanted to say a big thanks to everyone who has helped me, particularly guests of the show and Patreon and Bitcoin donators and people who share the podcast And all the people who gave it fantastic reviews. Last I checked, I'm sitting at about 86 iTunes reviews globally with an average of 4.9 stars. I really appreciate all the support I've received from fellow Bitcoiners. If you'd like to support me, my Patreon is patreon.com slash Stefan Levera. Patreon supporters get access to a private Telegram chat group for me and my supporters. And in that group, I share some inside goss on what guests are upcoming and we bounce around ideas in there. If you understandably have concerns with Patreon, you can alternatively support me on TallyCoin. That's tallyco.in. Stefan Levera. Payments there can be done using BTC or Lightning Payment also. At the moment, my preference is Patreon just because it has subscription, but I totally understand the concerns that many have with Patreon. Otherwise, if you haven't already, please do subscribe, thumbs up on YouTube, or five star rate and review it on iTunes and tell your friends about the podcast. That's it from me. I hope you've had a great 2018, and I wish you all the best for 2019. Check out the show notes for this episode on my website, stefanlevera.com. If you enjoyed it, remember to subscribe so you don't miss out on the next episode, and please share the podcast with your friends. You can also follow me on Twitter. My handle is at stefanlevera. Thanks for listening.